You're now listening to the eighth wonder of the world. Now the movies podcast. Did you know where the eighth wonder of the world been? I didn't, Nathan, but I'm glad to hear that. Really, how many wonders can you name of the world? Pyramids, uh, I think, are one. Hanging Gardens of Babylon used to be one. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. I, Back in the day. Great Wall of China. Great Wall of China. Oh, man. That I, might be it. I'm that. not good at this. Is the Empire State Building? A, no, surely no. not. No, I think that there's seven or eight classic ones, like from antiquity. Okay. Well, the Babylon, um, that, that was one. Huh. Or the Seven Wonders of the World, right? Because it's a thing that, yeah. Seven Wonders of the World. Oh, Okay. So it's the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Colossus of Rhodes, Ooh. the Temple of Artemis, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, and the Mausoleum at Helicarnassus, whatever that is. Huh. Man, I, yeah. And I feel like an uneducated something. But then, yeah, I knew, I've, done, I've gone down this road before. So there's the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is a list from the first century, and that's where the thing comes from. But then there are various other times that people have tried to mm-hmm. compile the seven wonders of the world and okay. modern lists that people have made. And yeah, you can actually go to Wikipedia and just find a article called Wonders of the World that just talks mm-hmm. about all the different lists of wonders of the world that people have come up with. Typically representative of such lists are the Catacombs of Kam el Shakwa in Alexandria, the Colosseum, the Great Wall of China, the Hagia Sophia, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and Stonehenge, mm. and all the kind of stuff you'd expect that would get onto the wonders of the world. Huh. Okay. But I'll tell you what the eighth wonder of the world is. It's actually not this podcast. That was a trick to make sure people were paying attention. It's mm-hmm. Kong. King Kong, King 1976 Kong classic with Jeff Bridges. What a film. What a film. Have you ever had the Charles misfortune? Charles Broden? Man, <laughs> he's amazing in this movie. Charles Broden, Grodin does get crushed under Kong's foot at I, the end of that film. I, I didn't even realize this existed. I think I might have been aware of its existence before. I've certainly never seen even a clip. People have tried to reboot this thing any number of times. So the Japanese, of course, have done it. Toho Studios had Kong for a while, and Mm. they did Kong versus Godzilla, and Kong was Mm -hmm. kind of one of their kaiju monsters. I don't know exactly how the rights work, but the rights for Kong have always been wonky. I know that much. And so, like, for example, the more recent Kong Skull Island, that whole franchise, Mm -hmm. the current Godzilla, I don't know if it's current, but the, the, the Godzilla franchise that they were trying to get off the ground there for a while, they cannot use the term King Kong in that. So you'll notice it's Kong Skull Island and... Things I didn't like realize. That. So I don't know who owns King Kong. Probably still Universal, because I think they did the Peter Jackson. But I thought Universal did Kong School Island. That's uh, Skull Island. Yeah, I, I don't know. Re- it's, it's weird. Marion Cooper, huh. who we'll talk about, the director of this film, he mm-hmm. claimed that he owned Kong as opposed to RKO owning Kong. And okay. Of course, RKO is not a thing. And so it's one of those things where the rights have kind of been all over the place. And Is Skull Island any fun? Um, I heard it was kind of crummy. It's it depends on what your capacity is for enjoying intentional destructive meanness. It's the kind of movie oh. where a guy runs forward to heroically s- sacrifice himself. He's got like a bomb strapped to his vest, and he's gonna uh-huh. blow up the monster. And then the monster casually flicks him, and he goes flying and explodes in the distance and it's mm-hmm. supposed to be like a funny subversion it's, uh-huh. it's, it's full of those kinds of eh, things probably not my cup of tea which yeah, i could take her if everyone's standard pose wasn't sort of irony and mm-hmm. you know seen it all kind then maybe uh, something like that once in a while i can vibe with but uh-huh. it's okay i mean i'm a sucker for as i'm sure we'll talk about i'm a sucker for movies with giant monsters i like giant monsters when they're done well they barely ever are and and something like i've not actually seen this but i've seen clips from dwayne johnson's rampage stuff like that <laughs> which was huge in china yeah he's a big star those things can be very very dire but for example <laughs> the 2014 or 16 or whatever the garth edwards godzilla movie mm-hmm. terrible movie for human drama like the character stuff in that movie is so boring but he really knows how to shoot Godzilla. Like he knows how to huh. 
Like the, the trick to a monster movie is you have to provide some perspective in order to provide some wonder. So you have to, mm. you don't just shoot Godzilla with kind of a bird's eye view. You have to shoot him through power lines or mm-hmm. with a house or with little humans in the foreground. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a way to compose a shot. One of my favorite scenes from, did you see that Godzilla? I did, yeah. I like the scene where they're in an airport and they're looking out sort of the, whatever you call them, the windows that look out on the planes on the mm-hmm. tarmac and you see Godzilla go by in the rain and it just feels very like, man, it captures the feeling mm-hmm. of, it's like a locate. It's a location that you could put yourself in as an audience and then you've, you're kind of used to seeing the wonder of airplanes outside of that window, but now you see the wonder mm. of Godzilla. And so, but then you've compared that to Godzilla versus Kong, the more recent entry in that franchise. And Mm -hmm. it's all just shot like a big video game. There's barely any humans by the time it's just two monsters throwing each other into buildings. And it doesn't really have any sense of scale or perspective. Same with uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah, that was really bad. It looked, yeah. Yeah. That was just all, I don't know if they ran out of money for the special effects or whatever. The special effects are good, but they're all obscured by heavy rain and darkness and it's all just you don't and it's all set in kind of a sci-fi ish world where you just don't have that feeling of what if godzilla walked past my house what if godzilla knocked down my power line things to make you feel viscerally right the what it would be like to be in an apocalyptic scenario with a giant monster but did you i know we're just sidetracking yeah it's all related to giant monsters so did you ever see gareth edwards movie monsters like his kind of his entry i didn't i've always been curious to watch it because it seemed like the kind of thing i might yeah i think that you might i don't know if your wife would just because it's not i mean it does have human drama but it's a pretty boring right drama it's what it does do is it creates a world Mm mm-hmm which that guy's good at doing where you're like, just feels grounded, like all this monstrous biology has come to earth. Right. And, and so it's short on like big set pieces and stuff. It's a lower, I think a lower budget movie, mm-hmm. but it just feels, you, you just buy it. Like you, you buy the world, you buy the setting, you buy like the weirdness of have the earth having been invaded by this weird, all these weird creatures and biology and stuff that's taking over. And you kind of, and you get what you get in that guy's Godzilla movie, which is a sense of we're worshiping the divine through the monstrous. Yes. And it feels, it's like this stuff is more interesting than the humans actually. Right. Of course the humans should worship it. So. Yeah. We could talk about transcendence and all those kinds of things. And I suppose we have many times on this and other podcasts, but I do like these monster movies when they can evoke a little bit of that awe and transcendence i think it's fun and another example i'll give not a great movie and not a movie that people particularly loved but the steven spielberg war of the worlds mm-hmm. just the kind of visceral you're in the car and the martians are looming over you and you hear their kind of and, or there's something happening over the crest of the hill there's lights and explosions and screams mm-hmm. and you're gonna follow tom cruise as he experiences it from a person's eye viewer when they're on the ferry and the big ship thing or whatever it is tripod thing comes out of the water i really dig that kind of stuff in my films when it's done well which as we said it barely ever is and maybe some of that goes back to my childhood love of king kong a movie that we could talk about whether it holds up or not it has a special place in my heart, I have a big King Kong poster in my living room. It has a special place in your living room. It has a special place in my <laughs> living room. It's a piece of pop iconography that I love, and I, w- I wish somebody would do King Kong right. I do have a fondness for the Peter Jackson movie. It's got a lot of boring character stuff, but the monster stuff is pretty fun in that movie, mm-hmm. actually. Well, let's get into it. We're talking about 1933's King Kong, one of the first big truly influential special effects features here i've got a quote from roger Eber here quote on good days i consider citizen kane the seminal film of the sound era but on bad days it is king kong that is not to say i dislike king kong which in this age of technical profession perfection uses its very naivete to generate a kind of creepy awe it's simply to observe that the, this low rent monster movie and not the psychological puzzle of kane pointed the way towards the current era of special effects, science fiction, cataclysmic destruction, and nonstop shocks. King Kong is the father of Jurassic Park, the Alien movies, and countless others in which heroes are terrified by skillful special effects, unquote. So I guess if anybody needed to know why it's worth talking about King Kong, 
that's why it's worth talking about King Kong. It is mm. the grandfather of every spectacle movie. Of, the, of some of our favorite movies growing up, like Independence Day and Jurassic Park and all that stuff huh. that felt so cool back in the day. So, yeah. Huh. But Ben, what is your... It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. I never look back, darling. It distracts from the now. Baggage. With this film, I guess I've already sort of said my baggage. I love these kinds of movies. I did grow up with Kong. I watched it, watching it today, this morning with Ben. It was, we were chuckling a lot at how creaky some of the dialogue is and how bad some of the acting is and just the human drama of it all is pretty, pretty silly and pretty trite. But I watched this movie at a young enough age that I didn't even know that any of that stuff was anything less than just normal. Uh And the monster stuff was pretty creepy and pretty awe-inspiring and pretty cool. So I remember King Kong and I've, I've since enjoyed King Kong. I like special effects. I I like, I'm not an anti CGI guy, like so many people in the sort of film community are these days, but I, I do like old timey special effects where you can kind of see the seams and see kind of puzzle out, how they're doing certain things and or even enjoy and be inspired by how they do certain things just uh, things that, like in this movie like watching kong he'll be holding what is a claymation model of a human and then he will put the human down and there will be kind of a wipe and then it'll be fey ray or whoever running away from mm-hmm. a robot hand stuff like that i really enjoy i obviously like many of my generation grew up watching and rewatching things like Star Wars and Terminator and stuff like that. And so I'm used to things like the ATT walkers, like thinking about how it's done and seeing some mm-hmm. of the seams, which you could see a little bit more back in those days. So I guess that's my baggage. What's your baggage? I re- vaguely remember a couple scenes with dinosaurs in the jungle. I think it's the first one that they kill that I really remember. It's the one where you it doesn't actually interact with them. It's all in the backdrop. It's kind of a brontosaurus, it's but a, a really mean brontosaurus. A really mean brontosaurus thing that, that starts to charge them, and then they shoot it and gas it and mm-hmm. finally walk by it. But they don't interact with it at all. Oh, no, you're talking about the stegosaurus, actually. Oh, am I? There's the stegosaurus. The oh, first right, dinosaur right, they right. see is that stegosaurus. That's right, that's the, right. It's a stegosaurus, yeah. yeah. No, not the brontosaurus. Man, that thing was horrible. Right. Um, yeah, that, I don't know. That might have been the creepiest yeah, it's kind of rising weird. up out of the water like that. Yeah, it knocks the raft over and Yeah, it's awful. That's all I remember. And I feel like I must have seen the whole thing, but I wasn't interested, I guess, as a kid, or I just didn't get I just didn't see it. And so I didn't realize what it was. And then I did see the Peter Jackson thing. For some reason, at least twice in the theater, I want to say. Yeah. How else can you soak in all the masterly touches? <laughs> Well, of all Peter Jackson films, it is the one that makes the best use of his self-indulgence, ridiculous melodrama, and just sort of gee whiz version of CGI effects. Yes. It is. It's just, it has plenty, it has all of his typical problems, but if they're more in place than they are in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of stuff that I enjoyed and thought was fun. A lot of stuff where I thought he nailed the winking tongue-in-cheek tone that he was going for. Yes. So there was plenty of moments where I was like, nope, you didn't. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that movie, although and I guess we could talk about this. What he does is he takes the next logical step in being sympathetic to the monkey mm-hmm. and leaves you with what, in retrospect, at least if not at the time, I guess it was sort of at the time, is a creepy romance between a woman and a monkey that is gross. Right. And this movie doesn't do that, and that's nice. What I find with so many of these remakes of these sorts of things is that the filmmaker doesn't actually remake the film. He remakes his own response to the, the film. So yeah. generations of boys have watched King Kong and found themselves sympathizing with the monster in King Kong and liking the monster and thinking it's cool that he kills all these dinosaurs, maybe even feeling some weird feelings about the fact that he's got this helpless little girl that he's not little girl but this helpless woman that is kind of his play thing i I think there's many boys have watched the movie and really locked into actually liking kong but that doesn't mean that's actually the text Uh of the movie it just means it's i don't even know that i would even say it's the subtext of the movie i suppose it's the subtext of the movie like it's all there but it is surprising to go back and watch this movie and realize how much King Kong actually is the antagonist as opposed to the misunderstood protagonist. Yeah, you get a little sympathy for him at the end, I think. 
But really not too much. Not too much. And the girl never responds to his advances. She doesn't reciprocate. (laughs) Right. She does not reciprocate. She does not have some charming interactions with him. Naomi Watts is extremely charming. Yes. She does a good job with the monkey stuff in that movie. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. But you can't, I don't think you could escape the fact that it's gross. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the stuff I like from that movie, I like the, well, it's this, actually the same thing with the original Kong. I like the stuff where they, act, once they finally get to the island mm-hmm. and they start having dinosaur adventures, I just love all that stuff. I love it in the original. I love it in Jackson. Jackson's way over the top with yeah. brontosaurus stampedes and all kinds of. Adrian Brody kicking raptors in the face. Right. <laughs> and that chase scene. <laughs> yes. That was great. Yeah, I mean, the, I actually rewatched the other day the scene where. Naomi Watts is menaced by two T-Rexes and Kong ends up wrestling one of them or killing both of them. Mm -hmm. And it's way over the top. It is all the Jacksonian excess you could ever want and then some. But it is kind of genuinely inspired. It is almost Keaton-esque. Like they all get wrapped up in vines clinging over this ledge and then the girl keeps switching from she's about to get eaten by this dinosaur who can only just reach her. And then she swings away and ends up clinging onto the nostril of the other dinosaur. And oh, meanwhile, yeah. Kong is bouncing around and doing stuff. And it's just a great little exercise in cause and effect. And yeah, it was. It's really fun. It, it's really fun. It's really fun. And then it, of course, apes the best gag. Apes, get it? <laughs> apes the best gag from the original King Kong, which is after he breaks the jaw of his antagonist. Anytime he kills anything, he always plays with it for a minute to <laughs> make sure that it's dead, uh-huh. uh, which is a nice little, not humanistic, but what would you say? Nice observed reality of animal uh-huh. behavior sort of thing. Yeah, it's pretty great. But anyways, you were saying that you liked the Jackson movie. Okay, saw it twice. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Maybe we can talk about it more as we go. You can see him repurposing most of the elements from the movie. Right. Kind of making his own thing. And then, of course, adding in typical Jackson fashion. He adds like all these themes and this excess and a heart of darkness motif that's really fun in a B-movie kind of way. And that he actually pays off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot. He makes the natives into these, they're like from Italian exploitation cannibal films or something like they're pretty gruesome and pretty scary and pretty yeah, demonic. That's right. And you feel like actually, yep, that would be true. Right. <laughs> if you were on an island where you were sacrificing things to giant monkeys and barely keeping alive from giant dinosaurs, you'd be degraded and corrupted and you just, anyway. Right. This movie is more like booga, 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 booga. <laughs> really old timey. They're really old-timey stereotypes, yeah. yeah. What's your feeling on Cajun movies, Godzilla, big monsters in general? I never had an affinity for them. I never had an interest. Didn't watch any Godzilla. Yeah, it wasn't until I got older, saw Peter Jackson's Godzilla, and then, sorry, King Kong, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, many years later, I think. And then I really liked Del Toro's Pacific Rim movie at the time. I've never seen that, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good movie. I think seeing it at the time in the theater was the most fun way to do it. I'm sure. I won't not recommend it. I won't recommend it. It has no nutritional value. It is, it's annoyingly B-movie in its way. Some of the action is pretty cool. Some of the effects are pretty cool. I don't know what else to say about it. Ron Perlman chews a bunch of scenery in a way that's kind of fun. Idris Elba chews a bunch of scenery in a way that's not not that much fun. Mm -hmm. And... Charlie Hunnam is invisible, almost in the role of in the main character role, the, the main role pilot of, role. He's not as he doesn't have a character to play. So there's not much else to say about that movie. There you go. Uh, maybe I'll catch up with it someday if it's. It has some fun action stuff. It has some colors and lights and <laughs> things that make you go ooh <laughs> for a second. Right. That's all that it has. I do like a good monster destroying things movie, but yeah, I don't know. You might not. You wasn't it you who was saying that the creature designs did look very interesting. That is something that I constantly mourn, and it was true in that Godzilla Gareth Edwards movie. The meat creatures that he had to fight weren't that mm-hmm. that cool. They were okay. They're okay. But what you want in a monster, you want a monster that you can recognize even in silhouette. That it's just so distinctive and so amazing that it's just okay. That's the monster, and I just feel like people have been dropping the ball on monster design. I tells you, like the last time we got a truly original scary alien was in the Aliens 
franchise. I don't think anybody's done anything since then. Really? That's got to be an exaggeration. It's got to be. Okay, the creature's in Arrival, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Go Denny Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, I'm, I'm just talking scary aliens. I'm sure people have mm. done some interesting benevolent aliens that we could think of or even creepy okay. aliens. But... In terms of just iconic alien design, you think of things like Quiet Place, really eh. boring. Del Toro is the guy would is the guy that you'd look to, but yeah. I, he I don't know that he does a great job with these giant monsters. They're not terrible. They're just he does a better job in his other monster movies, like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Great monsters. Yes, very very distinctive monsters. And uh, oh, what other movie? The Hellboy stuff. Oh yeah, the Hellboy monsters are great. Mm-hmm. Yep. You got those dog things. You got the uh, Hellboy. The Angel of Death. Yeah, the Angel got, of Death. Uh, yeah. You've got the whole goblin bazaar, the goblin market. Yeah. You've got the golden robot things and You got all kinds of crazy creatures. Yeah. Yeah, no. Del Toro is a good creature guy, but yeah, I don't know. I never was very inspired by the Pacific Rim creatures when I saw them. They looked kind of generic. It looked yeah. like the robots were more sort of iconic and the well, robots were well done than the yep. monsters were. I'd say that's true. And it just made me wish, well, I, too bad he couldn't just get the rights to Godzilla or to an already instead of having to do yeah a knockoff but be that as it may big monsters yeah we'd be big monsters if we didn't provide some context for the film <laughs> we're about to talk about or that we are talking about or should i say kong text oh i shouldn't let me explain no there is too much let me sum up you may think you know what you're dealing with but believe me, you don't. Marion Cooper, born in Jacksonville, Florida, October 24th, 1893. And Jacksonville, Florida, Ben, you may or may not know, was actually a hub of filmmaking in the early days. Really? Yeah, silent filmmaking. What they liked, Hollywood was always going to, well, Hollywood obviously was in California even before it was a filmmaking hub, but... Filmmaking was always going to center itself in the South somewhere where they could have year-round sun and Mm -hmm. not be at the mercy of the seasons. And so Florida was a plausible place for where cinema could have ended up, but it ended up in California. So Cooper just grew up around movies. And he was, the other thing that he grew up around was adventure, specifically He loved gorillas, if you can imagine that. And his cool uncle gave him a super old book from the time called Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa by an explorer named Paul de Chaloum, who hung out in Africa and met all kinds of local creatures or local creatures. He met all the local creatures. He met all kinds of wild creatures, chatted with the locals. If you think about the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, you still have kind of that Victorian exploration we're going into dark territory and discovering things like the spirit of adventure the globe hasn't quite been conquered yet at this point it's a little harder to feel all that excited about venturing into the dark rainforests of africa or something because we kind of feel like well we've probably seen everything that there is to see with satellites and we've probably been most places and there's probably not an island like skull island out there that we just haven't discovered But only a hundred years ago or so, people could still be very excited about the uncharted territory in the world. And Marion Cooper was one of those guys. And the thing that really caught his eye in this particular book was, of course, pictures of gorillas and descriptions of gorillas that this explorer named De Chaliu met, including one big gorilla that the locals called King of the African Forest, described as a half man, half beast, nightmare creature. <laughs> Cooper signed up to fight in World War One and became an aviator, flew missions over Europe, got shot down by the Germans, and actually had his death reported prematurely to his parent parents. I guess I'm emphasizing all this stuff because Cooper actually was an adventurer. Carl hmm. Denham, the filmmaking dude in this film, is a little bit in the spirit of he's, he's a very silly exaggeration, but he's in the spirit of who Marion Cooper. Mm-hmm actually was cooper actually after the war joined a group of american volunteers called the kosciuszko squadron and went and defended poland against russia 
which was encroaching on Poland at the time, like just went and fought his own <laughs> private war against Russia. Not his own private, but, you know, not an American one. Ended up spending time in a Russian labor camp, escaped from the Russian labor camp and had to hike hundreds of miles to safety. Huh. During the war, he met a cameraman named Ernest Shodshak. And these guys started exploring different places, capturing footage of tribal behavior, animals, stuff like that. Hmm. Again, very much in the spirit of who Carl Denham, the producer dude in this movie, is. But eventually they actually got signed in the 1920s with Paramount Pictures, and they did a film called Chang, which was shot in Siam, what would have been Siam now then, but it's now Thailand, and documented all this stuff that people people didn't have the internet back then. They needed these kinds of travelogue films to actually see what was going on in other parts of the world. We talked a little bit about this on our documentary episode, Gates of Heaven, but you you, mm-hmm. you took us through the history of things like Nanak yeah. of the North and yep. like yep. all these films that existed to just show people like, this is what it's like to be an Eskimo. And some right. of them were more realistic. Some of them were guilty of, what should we say, exoticizing their uh-huh. their subjects. But he did things like filmed an elephant stampede that mm-hmm. people had never seen. In 1929, he made the film The Four Feathers, which was shot in Africa, and it, it tells a fictional, much, much like the movie that they're, the movie within the movie in King Kong, it tells a fictionalized story. It tells the story of The Four Feathers, which has been made into a movie any number of times, but it uses real footage of Africa, real footage of natives. It's like mixing and matching this fictionalized story with actual footage from actual things, and maybe with some stuff that they said was actual footage who knows the line between reality and hype mm-hmm. but but this led to cooper getting hired by rko and this led to him getting the chance to make a movie that he'd been dreaming about since he was a child about a massive scary gorilla the other thing that's happening right now is industrialization is hitting and cities are growing and the first skyscrapers are being built in New York, and Cooper saw a plane fly over the New York insurance building, and he thought, that's the climax for my movie. I'm going to have my giant monkey climb this building. And so he got to work, and that's really all we need to know about Marion C. Cooper. I mean, he did a number of these kind of spectacle pictures. He worked on something called The Last Days of Pompeii, which has great special effects showing the destruction of Pompeii, the famous Roman city that got destroyed by the volcano, stuff like that. But King Kong really is the thing that Mm-hmm. he'll be remembered for he wasn't a great filmmaker as you may have picked up on in the talking scenes of <laughs> this film but he was a great showman and maybe the guy that's more worthwhile to talk about is willis o'brien who is one of the fathers of stop motion animation the stop motion animation if people don't know is where you film something a frame at a time i'm sure everybody knows this but you film a frame at a time and you move you make little movements in between filming each frame and so i can just i'm looking at ben's wallet which he's put on his on the table in front of us right now i could aim a camera at that wallet i could take a shoot a frame then i could go in there and move the wallet a little bit and then shoot another frame and i do that a couple hundred times and then step back and run the footage and we've just got ben's wallet magically sliding across the table (laughs) and so that's stop motion animation It goes back at least to 1898 when a movie called The Humpty Dumpty Circus emerged as the inaugural stop-motion film with these dolls sort of being circus performers, we think. But regrettably, that film has been lost and there's no... What's the name of it? Humpty Dumpty Circus. There's no images or even remnants of it left. We just know that it was a thing. The earliest surviving stop-motion picture is called... Fun in a Bakery Shop, and it's from 1902, and basically it involves some dough turning into like a talking face or something like that, and pretty crude by these days, by the standards even of the film we're talking about today, but stop motion has been around, I guess the point is stop motion has been around since the advent of cinema. It was something that people very quickly figured out and tried to begin experimenting with just to create the illusion of motion. Willis O'Brien 
is the most important. So probably a lot of people will have heard of Ray Harryhausen, who made films in the 50s and 60s, things like Jason and the Argonauts, the famous skeletons fighting the mm-hmm. guys, things like that. He's probably the most famous stop motion animator in film history. And he's the guy that inspired a lot of the people that worked on Star Wars and things like that. Well, the guy that inspired Ray Harryhausen uh-huh. was Willis O'Brien. Willis O'Brien was born in Oakland, California, spent his early days working on cattle ranches as a factory worker, a fur trapper, a cowboy, bartender. But in his leisure time, he loved to sculpt and he loved to illustrate. And this led to a job as a draftsman in an architect's office and as a sports cartoonist for the San Francisco Daily News. Meanwhile, he was supplementing his income by boxing. So this guy was a character. He was, he was a brake man on a railroad, all kinds of stuff. He's, he's got an interesting story. But he began to experiment with animation and actually released an animated short or had an animated sh- short playing at the 1915 San Francisco World's Fair, where all the, these wonders of the world and the latest technology was being debuted. He had this 90-second test footage of, I think, dinosaurs But this got him a job making a short film called The Dinosaur and the Missing Link, a prehistoric tragedy, which debuted in 1915 and is very kind of early, the sort of stuff that you see in King Kong. The other thing I suppose that's worth mentioning is that, of course, in the 18th century, Charles Darwin released his Origin of Species. And so people are really interested in, we could say what we don't like about that book. I hope most of our listeners would agree with what we don't like about that book. But in any case, people were interested in natural history and paleontology and mm. the natural world and the, in their this relatively recent conception of the prehistoric world as this place of cavemen and dinosaurs and beasts and stuff like that. So that's all something that people are excited about in the early 20, in the late 19th and early 20th Century. So anyway, he makes this film called The Dinosaur and the Missing Link, a prehistoric tragedy in 1915. This catches the attention of none other than Thomas Edison, who hires him to do these animated shorts. The Edison Company was putting out early forms of films in the early 20th century. And so O'Brien just becomes known as the premier stop motion animator guy, just making these little novelty shorts for Edison. This eventually leads to him being the primary animator on the first full-length movie to use animated stuff, which is The Lost World from 1925. It's a silent film based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's tale of men venturing into an unknown jungle and meeting Mm -hmm. dinosaurs and all this stuff. And so then that movie is still cool. You can find it. You can watch Mm -hmm. it. It's very much, there's dinosaur fights and I think they end up bringing a brontosaurus back to New York or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly, and it escapes and rampages. And it's just like everything you'd want from a big dinosaur film. So that's 1925. And then his next big gig is in 1930, begins working on King Kong for Marion Cooper. Him and Cooper famously had a lot of fights about what King Kong should even look like. Cooper wanted him to be a pure gorilla, but Willis O'Brien wanted him to have some sort of humanoid qualities and actually pushed originally for Kong to be much more human looking, much more of a hybrid. But Cooper made him just wanted Kong to be a scary gorilla and kind of made him backtrack on that. So what they ended up with is the creature that you see, which is basically just a gorilla, but without the hindquarters of a gorilla. And maybe without some of the extended chest of a gorilla, it's kind of like they flattened a gorilla out and made it stand up a little straighter and be a little bit more humanoid, but not as humanoid as what Willis O'Brien would have liked. Cooper was a great believer in constantly changing Kong's height to fit the settings. And so if you actually pay attention to this movie, and this is very intentional on that part, King Kong is all different kinds of heights depending on what's going to be spectacular for any (laughs) given scene. There's places where he's maybe double or triple the size of a man, and then there's places where he's a colossal beast that can stamp out a man with his foot. I think he he vacillates between about 20 feet to 40 feet. I I think he's bigger in the New York section because he's surrounded. He needs to be to 
interact with, with all the buildings. This, yeah. They compete with the buildings and the hmm. trains and all the stuff like that. And they were just very, what's the word? Not afraid to just blatantly change that. And people don't usually catch it mm-hmm. when they watch the movie now. I think I didn't. it's not egregious. I've actually seen like, like the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie is horrible in this regard. Godzilla is all different kind of scales and it's really <laughs> silly. The only silly thing about that masterpiece of a film, I guess the only other thing to say about King Kong is it did premiere so many different levels of special effects. And there's things that you might take for granted that if you've actually watched a lot of these kinds of special effects pictures, you'll realize they were way ahead of their time, especially just in in the ways that they build out their sets. So almost every jungle set that you see, there's going to be these different layers, there's like the set that the actors are performing on. And then a lot of times there'll be stuff painted into the foreground. There'll be projected backgrounds. There, there's, sometimes you'll be looking at four or five different layers, some of them very artificial, some of them models, some of them this, some of them done in camera, some of them done afterwards. Sometimes you'll be looking at a pure model setup with a little slice of something filmed by an actor that's integrated in the, you'll see King Kong fighting a monster and then Fay Ray or somebody will be on the corner of the screen. They would do things like cut up the film and integrate each piece of film with each shot that they were taking of the model. I don't know how to better describe that. There's a lot of cool tricks where the animated Kong will throw something up in the air in the background and then a, a live action thing will land and crush somebody or destroy something in the foreground. Mm-hmm. And obviously those are two different planes of existence. There's a lot of stuff where the actors are just performing in front of screens. It's all just really well integrated. You can see the seams if you're looking for them, but there's moments in the non-special edition of Star Wars that look chintzier, I would say, in terms of, well, he wasn't actually there with that rancor right. or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's all really well done. I think the black and white lets them hide the evidence of what they're doing in some ways. And the fact that everything is so artificial that they are in this weird, abstract, artificial jungle kind of scenario. Like it doesn't have to, they can fudge things. It doesn't have to live up to, mm-hmm. you know, I would say the only thing that is to my mind thoroughly unsuccessful is the giant Kong head that they sometimes cut to, mm-hmm. which is obviously not animated and just this kind of chintzy head that they'll have actors get into the mouth of or sometimes they'll want to cut to a close-up of him looming over somebody and that that will look pretty bad mm-hmm. uh, and there's a few things like that there's definitely places where you can see the seams but it really is an amazing technical achievement and something that really wasn't bettered the other thing about watching those some of the ray Harry, harryhausen movies is that you'll only get a monster attack or fight or something every 15 minutes or so and there's a lot of in-between stuff but kong really it takes a little while to get going, but once it gets going, it's just a pure rock'em sock'em monster movie from, you know, mm-hmm. from about minute 35 to minute 90 or whenever the movie mm-hmm. actually ends. And so it's very generous with its special effects in a way that's very modern feeling. And it's for any B movie fan, the worst thing is watching these movies where they spend 90 minutes setting something up. And then when you finally get to see the monster, it's over in 10 minutes. That's mm-hmm. just like the constantly when you watch these old B movies, the problem with them, you don't actually get much of what you paid to see, whether it's Dracula or the creature from the Black Lagoon or it came from outer space, that kind of stuff. But King Kong is very generous and it's the special effects are very integrated. And it really was the benchmark that people like George Lucas were going to have to measure up to. And it holds up pretty well, I'd say. I don't think we need to talk about any of the actors. They're all pretty terrible. Faye Ray was a B-movie star that is obviously known for King Kong and known for her scream and her legs. And she puts both a good effect in this movie, I suppose. But the male actors are all pretty boring and stiff. And <laughs> I said that the lead, romantic lead, reminded me very much of Billy Zane. Yes. <laughs> and you meant that as the compliment that it was. I did. I did. I don't hate Billy Zane. No, but but it, I don't know. It's almost like if Peter Jackson had cast the same part with Billy Zane, it would have been the same exact character. Or yes. Something. Yeah, exactly. So that's all the King, King Kong text that we need. What was your point of view on this film? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. A new fantastic point of view. 
good as a point of view, Anakin. Oh, my point of view is it's a lot of fun. It's, like you said, generous with its effects and with its monster bashing. And the fight between Kong and the T-Rex is like a long, fun fight. Yes. It does feel, especially modern, it feels like here are a lot of the fun things we would do in a fight. It feels, oh, you thought about this fight. You didn't just have guys in rubber suits whacking each other. You, it's not rubber suits anyway, it's stop motion, but you didn't just do the lamest version that you could have, and you still could have gotten a lot of money from little boys and their parents if you had, but instead you made like an actual fight with some logic and suspense between Kong and this dinosaur that's Mm -hmm. pretty fun and has some humor at the end, like you said, where he clacks the guy's, the dinosaur's jaws together after killing it. And you've got just stuff like that all the time. You've got Kong fighting a snake and (laughs) a pterodactyl. (laughs) Yes. You've got all these other lizard creatures running around, and the jungle just feels like it's swarming with these dangerous creatures. Yeah, I really responded to that as a little kid. And oh, just yeah. like it did not feel like you could ever sit down and catch no. your breath as soon as you went past the wall. Something was going to kill you if you weren't careful. Yeah, and I think I was surprised at how the special effects are really good. I didn't expect them to look that good. Everything's well integrated. Um, the filmmaker for the most part, give has a good sense, keeps you, it lets you figure out where you are in right. space, in the jungle, for the most part. And it feels like, yeah, the actor can escape Kong by shimming down a rope into a cave, and then Kong's going to try to grab him. Right. But it doesn't feel, he doesn't cut away in the way that I've seen other old movies do, where, oh, there's the special effect of Kong. Now, here's the actor, and we're by cutting, we're going to tell you that the actor's close by Kong, but we're not going to show them together. Mm-hmm. If we do, it's going to look terrible. So we're not. We're mostly going to show them separately. There's Kong. There's the actor cut back. He goes down to the cave. There's Kong. There's a big rubber hand reaching into the cave. You're, we're going to make you... We're going to ask you to believe that's the hand of the gorilla. Right. We're going to cut these things into little bits because we don't know how to make them look good together. It's going to look and feel very cheap. You're going to be reminded all the time that the actor and Kong have nothing to do with each other when you made this movie. One is a bad special effect. The other is a bad actor and a bad set. <laughs> right. Instead, it just feels like this is an integrated kind of world, a jungle world. And that's, that's very modern. It made me think of Spielberg yeah. and how good he is at, at his illusions and made me wonder what he took from this movie. I just, I don't know, I just didn't think it was going to be the quality it was. It's very fun how much they integrate the, and if you go through it frame by frame, you just pause on every shot, you can see them using a million different tricks. Sometimes it's back projection and Mm -hmm. the actors are just acting in front of a screen. Sometimes the actors actually become clay models. Like Mm -hmm. there's, there's little clay human models that, or whatever they would be made out of that that Kong's interacting with. Sometimes they're, like I said, there's a little piece of film that's, actually being what I, the way I should have described it is they would actually project like they've already filmed a Fay Ray in the corner shot and they are projecting it and then moving it up frame by frame onto the model set where they're also moving Kong. There's just all kinds of stuff like that, but there's so much of it that you just kind of forget to look for any one given trick and you just come to believe that everybody's mm-hmm. actually interacting and it's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. The set design is really great. Yeah. Doesn't waste the set, I want to say. Does a lot with sets, and then you get to watch the fun of Kong smashing various mm-hmm. sets. Yeah. The sets are interacted with as well, and that helps a lot with the immersion. So, yeah, I don't know. It's got a lot of stuff going for it. The stuff in New York looks really cool. Mm-hmm. The sets of New York, when Kong smashes a freight car, it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. A freight car. Whatever, <laughs> what am I like saying? The, the, a train. The L you know, train. The or, L, yeah, yeah. yeah when he, it's full of passengers. So when he climbs the building, it retains a sense of scale and a sense of he's climbing a real building, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a model, but it, the director's good at fooling you. Right. The final scene where the planes are attacking Kong is a lot of fun. There's stop motion planes, you know. Yeah. But it's pretty great. Yeah, and they cut to real footage of guys in planes. And they yeah. do things like, I I still don't know how they did this. There's a, a scene where the camera in the sort of point of view of the plane swoops over Kong. And I don't know, it, one thing that they didn't really crack until Star Wars was how to have the camera move when 
there's a creature, usually the camera's moved locked down for an animated creature for obvious reasons. It's what are you going to do? You can try and animate the, move the camera frame at the time, but there's stuff like that where it's just like, I don't even know. I suspect what they did is they filmed a locked down camera animation of Mm -hmm. Kong and then they just zoomed the camera in on the film being projected. Kind of a pan and scan sort of a thing. But there's all kinds of stuff like that. Like, yep. like if you like movies and you like to see, if you think about how they do these kinds of things, it's yeah. a fun movie for that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So I enjoyed all that. The movie really works as an adventure. It has some sort of horror beats I didn't anticipate. Kong is nasty and brutal and kills a lot of people and yeah, feels pretty awful. He's not the Andy Serkis benevolent peter jackson although although that thing kills lots of people too right but it's always more jackson doesn't want you to lose sympathy with kong right (laughs) Uh, whereas this kong kind of when he's getting gunned down by the plane they do show him like feeling the bullet holes and sort of befuddled by what's happening befuddled by what you know Touching Fay Ray one last time. Right. And there's a sense of, ah, uh, this we brought this animal here and he doesn't understand what's happening to him and now we're just wasting him. There, There is some of that in this movie, but mm-hmm. not as much as you'd expect if you no. if you know the King Kong story, you kind of expect, well, this girl's and the monkey are going to fall in love with each other and that's not really what happens. Nope. And even... Kong's interest in her feels very much more, you know, a shiny a, thing. Yeah, a boy playing with a toy or something right. like that. It's, there's not this kind of romantic or friendly. There's certainly not a part where they go ice skating in Central Park or whatever it was that Jackson <laughs> did. Uh, oh, yeah, forgotten about that, whatever that was. Yeah, there's like this peaceful interlude. Yeah, what else is there to say about this film? You'll, you'll have to put up with about a half an hour of really cheese ball stage setting material really bad dialogue really bad acting really bad exposition i don't know as a first timer coming to this as an adult and as a first timer were you fairly bored and put off by that stuff or was it pleasant enough to get through or what oh it was fine i mean it was it was an it had enough movement narrative movement to not be totally boring right it was fun to laugh at the acting and the script the script especially yes is pretty funny. Yeah, the love story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, it's clear these guys are trying hard to ape better, but there we go again. <laughs> they're trying to mimic better writers. Yes, <laughs> and then and, not succeeding. And they're not succeeding, no. but it's funny how they're not succeeding. It is funny. And there's a lot of that just kind of bad exposition dialogue. I don't I can't think of an example, but just kind of where someone says something they would never say just because the audience needs to why, Ben, you know we do a podcast. It's called Sanity at the Movies. We're doing it right now. You know, it's like oh that kind of goodness. like, why, yeah. why would he explain that thing that they both already know? Yeah, that, that was amazing. There's a lot of that. There's a lot so. of that sort of thing. Yeah, I would say the only time, the only place the movie really drags for me is the natives, just because the movie is more interested in regarding them as more exotic and like right. the audience wants to see some of their ceremony and stuff. And oh, they're, yeah. And they're just boring and. That's right. You just, I don't know, not to be all woke or anything, but you feel bad for these, you know. I did. Indigenous peoples that they had play this stupid stereotype. Or if it's, I don't know, if it was just black actors in Hollywood, whoever it is, you don't feel like they're using their talents very well. No. I mean, it's embarrassing for somebody to have to, like, be dressed in a ceremonial monkey garb and literally, almost literally be doing, like, an Ooga Booga kind of dance. and Yeah. No, yeah, that stuff. I would say that the Indians get more respect in a John Ford Western than this these natives do. Oh yeah, yeah, no. So, so that that part drags a little bit. But then once Kong finally shows up, it's a nonstop thrill ride. Yeah, and in terms of so you got your sets, you got your special effects, you also have your Scott your uh, shot compositions, mm-hmm. and he really. He really just does a great job. That also is an important part of immersion, the way that you shoot and the way that you edit. Yeah. He's just really good at it. I don't think I expected it to be visually as compelling. Mm -hmm. And that too feels like something upstream of Spielberg. Yeah. So I don't know what else to say about that, but it's a lot of really cool visuals. And you feel like he doesn't miss many opportunities. So it kind of surprises me he didn't, 
become a more important director. That's how I felt. It's like, who is this guy? Like, why don't I know his name? And why didn't he leverage this into becoming some kind of brand or making a lot more movies? I see that he didn't make many more. Yeah, he did. He did stuff. But so let's see. In in terms of what has actually stood the test of time. Yeah. So the movies, there there are two movies that came. He basically made two movies after King Kong as director. And they're both worth seeing, I suppose. Last Days of Pompeii is a good spectacle destruction of Pompeii movie. Okay. With Willis O'Brien special effects. And Mighty Joe Young is another kind of classic creature feature. A much better spiritual sequel to King Kong than the actual Son of Kong, which was a cheapie they rushed out to take advantage of it. I think this guy just wasn't interested in being a great director. If you look at his filmography, he produced a lot of stuff. He produced a lot of the great John Ford stuff, Ford Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Rio Grande, The Quiet Man. So he worked at RKO. He's just more of a showman and a producer than an actual filmmaker. Seems to be what he wanted to be, but he he certainly could make a good adventure movie when he wanted to i mean king kong is like you said really stagey and bad when in the just people talking Mm -hmm. stuff but all the dynamic stuff that has to deliver yeah does so in spades yeah it does and it feels relatively modern yeah yeah it really does it really does yeah it's cool there's a quote from i actually read this quote in our jurassic park episode but i do think i want to read it again because it obviously applies to this movie and it's from his his review of this movie he says in Jurassic Park you're more or less you're looking more or less at a real dinosaur in King Kong you are looking at an idea of a dinosaur created by hand by technicians who are working with their imaginations when Kong battles the large flesh-eating dinosaur in his first big battle scene there's a moment where he forces its jaws apart and the bones crack and blood drips from the gaping throat and something immediate happens that is hard to duplicate on any computer Unquote. And I am, like I've said, not anti-CGI at all. I think it can be used very, very well and it can be used very evocatively. But but there is something about just the nightmare dream quality of this movie. Like these are Uh these are not like when you watch Jurassic Park, you're just looking at a dinosaur. But this movie, it's like you're looking at your nightmare of a dinosaur or just the kind of id of what you think of when you think of as a dinosaur. And it does get some kind of primitive power from that. I think like there is something for me, at least that does feel kind of primordial and cool about some of that jungle stuff in particular, like the T-Rex fight, I would say. And other stuff like that, where it's just like, I'm not seeing what a real dinosaur jungle would look like, but I am seeing what kind of pulpy nightmare of a dinosaur jungle would look like. And it's cool. Let's see. What else is there to say about this movie? I don't know. Is there a theme to this movie? Not what the theme it thinks it has. It certainly wants to, they spend much time in the script talking about Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast, and they give this semi, what they think is profound last line to Carl Denham about, it wasn't planes that brought him down, it was Beauty killed the Beast. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's pretty dumb. Yeah. I mean, it, in the sense that it, without Beauty, he wouldn't have been lured out onto the beach and gassed and brought to New York, <laughs> I guess. But uh, no, I don't know. I don't really, I think this, I don't really think the movie has anything. We were talking about this beforehand. It's interesting to sort of speculate in any version of this movie that was made now, the Carl Denham character would be portrayed as, well, I suppose Jack Black did something interesting with him, I guess, in this King Kong where they kind of tried to make him semi-sympathetic. So if people haven't seen the movie, the idea is that he's this brash, self-promoting producer guy who you know just an impresario type who just gets everybody on board with his vision and they don't make any a special point of him being uncaring about human life or anything like that but you could see how if somebody was writing the script today of course they would make him into a villain he'd be like the capitalist that just doesn't care and wants to Mm -hmm. you know we got to get this shot and he doesn't care about the natural world and doesn't respect the natural world and it blows up in his face and eventually he'd be eaten by a dinosaur or stepped on by King Kong. And Charles Grodin does get stepped on by King Kong playing (laughs) the equivalent character in the terrible 1970s version, which does just use people in rubber suits, by the way. Really bad special effects in that one. Nice. Really so much worse than anything in this movie. But this movie, I don't know. I mean, you could kind of argue that Denim's the villain. Like he, he does get 12 guys killed and then he does 
in his own carelessness, I suppose, unleash Kong on New York to much property destruction and many more innocent people being killed. But the movie doesn't have him get arrested. Like the movie, you can't tell whether the movie is just poorly written and conceived. And so it forgot to include the scene where Denim sort of pays for his crimes one way or another, or whether the movie does have a fundamentally different idea of than we do of the value of kind of exploration and Mm -hmm. taming the natural world. I mean, you could almost make a case that the movie just thinks, well, of course you put Kong in chains. Of course you bring him to New York. you got to try. And if he escapes, then you just go back and build some bigger chains or something like that. But of course we got to go beyond that wall. And uh, whereas today, by contrast, the movie would be very much, well, we got punished forever messing with the natural world and for not respecting it. Right. And, and maybe the movie is saying we got punished for not respecting the natural I, you world. Know, but I just don't think it cares about saying anything. Right. I think it just cares about the adventure and the spectacle. And Yeah. Jackson said all those things that you were just talking about one way or the other. Right. Kind of tries to split the difference with Wenham or whatever his name is with Denim. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, you, he, you feel like everyone gets punished in Jackson's King Kong. Right. Punished horribly and terribly by... Not just dinosaurs and the monkey himself, but all these awful giant bugs that come out and eat them. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, it's all pretty harrowing and gripping in his over-the-top way. But he doesn't conceive of Jack Black as a villain either. He wants Jack Black to be... I think he's both. He's like, he's not heroic at all, of course, but you feel like, well, you, yeah, I don't know what you feel like. <laughs> I don't know that he quite made... He, he made it, he cast an ostensibly likable actor in the role. That's one way of making a decision about who Denim right. is. But, and yeah. then I think there is like a scene where Jack Black gets his cameraman killed basically and feels bad about it or something. He's like, we've got to get this shot. And then well, the and gets- then there's something where one of the characters says he always ruins what he loves or something like mm-hmm. that. So it looks right. like he was wrong, whatever he's doing. He made a bad decision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> His character is suspect. Sir. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. This movie just doesn't really care one way or another. No, does it, it doesn't have a point of view. It doesn't have a sense. point of view. Yeah, it's like Jack and, or not Jack, Driscoll, the hero and the girl, like they're not mad at Denim for, no, <laughs> they're willing to come to the big show and profit should, profit off the big show. and They should be mad at Denim. Right. <laughs> they don't have any sense. Right. But they're just happy that they're going to make some money. <laughs> they're in of love. It. They're in love, yes. One of the great love stories of our time. <laughs> Anne and Driscoll. The Adrian Brody character, the Jackson version. Yep. One thing that the Jackson does that is fun is he has his little movie within the movie that Jack Black's character is filming, and he uses the chintzy dialogue from the real King, original King oh. Kong. Like it's the dialogue that That's Naomi awesome. Watts has to say. And he picks some of the choicest. I think he uses the scene where the guy's like, Women don't belong on boats. <laughs> but say you're kind of pretty or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, my favorite moment in Jackson. I'm just assuming we're never going to do. Jackson's Probably King not. Kong. Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to. I guess. But my favorite, absolute favorite moment is <laughs> they set up this thing for the kid Billy, whatever his name is. <laughs> he's the young, excited. He's excited to go on the voyage and on the ship, and he's he's like an orphan, but the first mate takes care of him. Right. And, Yes, the first mate is this big guy, he's a father figure. And he's like, look, Mr. So-and-so. And And he shows him the book he's reading for the voyage and it's Heart of Darkness. And he reads the copy on it. It's like, adventures on a tram steamer, just like us. And the guy's like, hmm. (laughs) And then later later when they get to the island and everything is going wrong. And I think they're already in the jungle or something. And people are starting to die. He looks at the first mate and he says, it's not an adventure story, is it? And the first mate says, no, Billy, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my favorite <laughs> moment. <laughs> See, Peter Jackson, when, when he's doing tripe, he's actually pretty fun. <laughs> just shouldn't do Tolkien. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Peter Jackson was a good person to update King Kong. <laughs> Uh, it's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a meta commentary. Uh, yes. On, <laughs> on, I don't mind. Even, who is, knows what? Is the audience like, oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. 
I should say the Jackson scene does feature an extended kind of horror scene where they after they, they fall off the log and the gorge, they're attacked by these giant bug mm-hmm. creatures and, mm-hmm. and several people die horrible, icky bug deaths. That was actually a scene that was shot for the original 1933 King Kong. Really? And it's one of the most famous lost scenes in cinema. Wow. Cooper, Cooper. So there's some stuff that actually after the movie had premiered, after it had been successful, it was cut out of subsequent releases. And so for most of the 20th century, when people watched this movie, you would not see a scene that you and I did see today, which is the scene where Kong strips off some of the girl's clothes and kind of smells her or something like that. Yeah. And that was considered too racy and Mm -hmm. actually didn't make it past the original cut. So if you'd watch this movie in the 50s or 60s or even up through the 90s, I think you wouldn't have seen that scene. It's only recently been restored. There's also this famous scene that was apparently shot where they all fall into the gorge. There is this weird thing where it keeps cutting to the bodies plopping into the gorge and it right. just it just feels like an extra sadistic piece of violence as it as right. it's in the yeah. movie. It's like here's yeah. here's more guys falling to their deaths horribly. <laughs> and let's make sure we see the bodies crack. But actually that was the setup for a sequence where some survivors got up and then were overwhelmed and menaced by these different giant centipedes and bugs and oh, wow, which Jackson, of course, being a icky horror movie provo- provocateur type dude, did his version of that scene. But apparently it was cut not at the censor's request, but cut by Marion C. Cooper himself, who just thought, eh, this is too much for we've already got plenty of horror and scary stuff. And this is just pushing things. So that was no one ever saw that scene. So, yeah, no one's ever seen that scene and has oh. apparently not survived. It's one of those things where there's legends that Marion Cooper kept the footage and had it, and we'd all love it if some film archaeologist discovered it in some vault somewhere. Just kind of like the missing footage from the missing, the magnificent Ambersons, well, mm. Orson Welles' famously mangled films. There's six or seven famous pieces of missing footage in the history of early film, and the bug attack scene in King Kong is huh. one of them. And it would be super fun to see but it doesn't there's no way it exists it would have degraded by now if it was in a vault somewhere and unless there's some private collector that owns it has preserved it has taken care of it and for whatever reason hasn't told anybody that's the only way it could have even survived and that would that's i don't know why that would that doesn't make sense so oh well no terrible bug deaths for all the crew (laughs) <laughs> just terrible brontosaurus i like how there's no good guy dinosaurs in this movie the like even the ones that we think of as nice dinosaurs like brontosauruses and stegosaurus no they're just all horrible they're just all vicious killers yeah anything else to say uh, what was your favorite sequence huh man i probably liked either the Kong versus T-Rex fight, or <laughs> there's like a snake dinosaur that he fights. <laughs> and he, that was really fun. He picks it up and he just basically whips its head on the ground. Yeah, it takes him a while to get to that point, Yes, but that's how he defeats it. Yes, I like that. Yeah, the, the T-Rex fight is super fun, though, because Kong's doing all this. He's doing wrestling, what we would yeah, now, now at least. Wrestling of, it. He's But he's doing pile driver. He does, I don't think he quite does a pile driver, but he's definitely punching it. Like, he's yeah. just punching it. And then he's doing these kind of, I don't know what they're called in wrestling, but he grabs it and then kind of flips it or uh-huh. or falls himself so that it'll fall, mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. It's just, it's, it's, fun. it's very recognizable yeah. fight behavior. <laughs> yeah. And then when he finally cracks its jaw and all the blood comes out and then it, he plays with the jaw for a second. Super, super, super fun. So yeah, that's probably my favorite sequence. I really like all the stuff in the jungle though. Once they... Once Anne gets captured by Kong, mm-hmm. I'd say the next half an hour to 45 minutes is just a purely, really, really, really fun section of classic film. Yeah. All right. How many broken jaw, dead pterodactyls do you give to King Kong? Out of? 4,000. 4,000. I'll give it like... 3,800? 3,800? Cool. Yeah, I'll do the same. Would you recommend that people see this film? Do you think that people would care or be interested? Or? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think especially it's a pretty fun movie for young boys. Oh, even, sure. I mean, 
make sure they're not going to be scared. There is some pretty scary stuff that happens. My two-year-old toddler walked in while we were watching this movie. Just At the most scary point. Yes, I think she actually probably would have been okay even for some of the other rougher stuff. But she walked in when Anne is tied up by the natives and King Kong is coming out of the jungle and he's roaring at her and she's screaming and stuff. And it was was more than... Poor Theo could handle. She ran, fled from the room screaming. That does remind me of one thing. So you're mentioning how the face close-up monkey, the close-up monkey face doesn't really work. But mm. I would say it does work in the sense of an image that's like grotesque and kind of horrifying. Yeah, just kind of it, leering at you. Yeah, it doesn't work maybe as a special effect, but it works as like a as a thing from the id, just like a weird, unfocused monkey face that's slightly human, but not really. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's the scenes where it has where a poor actor has to climb up into the mouth of the model and mm-hmm. writhe around as if he's getting bit. Those are kind of chintzy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is just crazy that, by the way, that King Kong bites lots of people to death, intentionally steps on people and then moves his foot around yeah. to kind of smother them. And, of course, there's a famous scene that Jackson also used where there's a bunch of guys crossing a gorge on a log and King Kong comes out of the woods and just starts turning the log. Oh, man. And he just (laughs) sits there turning the log until every last one of them has plummeted to their deaths. Um, Yeah. It's pretty intense. (laughs) It's intense. Yeah. Okay. King Kong. There's nothing else to say? Nope. Not much. Okay. Well... Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time. It was Beauty, Build the Beast.